Well, this morning we're going to look together at Joshua chapter 8. It seems a long time since we looked at uh, Joshua chapter 7 with uh, the different things that have happened since, with uh, uh, Christmas especially. Um, But I want to begin by reading the opening verses of Joshua chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Now we're looking uh, this morning at a chapter where God's people are restored. Uh, They've suffered a setback, but they're restored. And then in the last part of the chapter, they are renewed. They renew their covenant, their promise to serve the Lord as their God. And I want us to begin by saying that God always fulfills his promises. In the Bible, there are many, many promises which God makes, uh, but they are always fulfilled. And here, as we shall see, we see the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, He promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And uh, he promised to give his descendants the land, the land of Canaan. And uh, the book of Joshua is in some ways like the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's an exciting book. It's an action book. It speaks about the advance of God's kingdom. And uh, it has particular application to us as God's people today, as we think of the challenge we have of taking the gospel to this area and to people we know and indeed through others to the, the world. And it's so important, therefore, to, to have confidence in God and in the promises that he makes. And as we've seen already, the progress of the Israelites in Canaan was not straightforward. There were setbacks. Uh, Initially, Joshua sent out spies, and uh, then they crossed the Jordan, and then the walls of Jericho fell down and the city was taken. That was all very positive, and it seemed that everything was just going to be very straightforward. But when they came to the next city, the city of Ai, there were, there were problems. And it was linked to a number of things. First of all, the sin of one man, Achen, who had disobeyed God's command and uh, had taken possessions which he should not have taken from Jericho. And uh, also because there was a confidence in themselves. Because they'd won a victory at Jericho, the people thought, well, will win the next victory, and the next, and the next. And so they followed their own ideas and their own plans, and uh, they were defeated. And uh, some of the men were killed, 36 of them were killed in the first attempt to take Ai. And uh, then Achen was uh, was discovered, and uh, he was judged. And that was a solemn time, great victory, and then a setback and a defeat. And our experience as Christians and as churches can be like that, uh, where there are times when we're very positive and everything's going forward, and other times when there are struggles and there are difficulties. 
Times of advance, times of joy, times of success, and then times of sin, times of failure, times of grief. And what we see here is God restoring his people, bringing them back to where they had been. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God always provides for us a way back? When we fail, and Israel had failed very seriously in this situation, it's easy to believe, well, well, that's it now. There'll be no blessing from now on, but, but God has a way to restore us. Perhaps you have gone through struggles in your Christian life. Perhaps you're going through struggles now. And you've wondered, well, how are things going to go in the future? Well, isn't it encouraging to see that, that God speaks to Joshua again? And uh, after a setback, the people begin to advance and to be blessed by him. And so here at the beginning of this chapter, God encourages Joshua in the same way that he encouraged him right at the very beginning of the book before the conquest had begun. And uh, he addresses two particular problems that Joshua could have suffered from and we can suffer from too. Don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. Those are two things that can easily affect us. They could have affected Joshua. Having seen the defeat at Ai and things had gone wrong, perhaps he felt responsible for that. And uh, then having seen the judgment that had come upon Achan and his family, and again, he could have been so easily discouraged from that. We perhaps get discouraged. We've been living through a difficult time these last two years, haven't we? It's been a discouraging time. In some ways, it's knocked the stuffing out of us. And that's the kind of thing that had happened to Joshua and the people too. Uh, but so God encourages him. Don't be afraid. The enemy have won a victory. But it's related to your disobedience and your failure to follow my commands. But when you obey me, you will see a great victory. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. There's going to be another victory ahead. And we need to look to God uh, and to his promises. When either we're afraid or we are discouraged. You see, God had corrected his people in the situation of their first attack on AI because he loved them. He was showing them that what they had done was not the right way to go. Any parent who has a child knows there are times when you have to correct them. It isn't anything that you take pleasure in. Uh, It's much better to praise them when they do well. Um, But there are times when you have to stop them and challenge them and perhaps correct them and punish them because they're doing wrong things. And and that's what happens here with Israel. Because he loves them, God corrects them. He disciplines them. It's part of his training. Uh, And training of children uh, always involves a measure of the negative as well as the positive, encouraging things they ought to do and correcting them when they go wrong. And the Bible tells us that, that God disciplines us because he loves us. When we go astray, he, he corrects us. And uh, it's a sign of his love. And, and the letter of the Hebrew says uh, that any child who is loved knows the, the correction of a father, of a care for them. And uh, it says regarding discipline, there's lots of good that God disciplines us for our good. And later on, It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. So there's a sense in which as they go now into this 
second attack on AI, uh, they have come to understand God better and their dependence upon him and uh, that he has restored them after their failure. And uh, isn't that encouraging when we fail to know that God is able to lead us on and to put us right and to bless us again? You see, these people had spent 40 years in the wilderness. They hadn't fought any battles, but now they've got to take the promised land because there are people living in it. There are walled cities like Jericho and uh, AI now, and it's not going to be easy. And they're just reminded that they need the Lord. They need his help and his enabling. But when people are unfaithful, when people break God's commands and disobey him, it tends to have a demoralizing effect upon others. God reassures Joshua because he needs reassurance. And sometimes when things go wrong uh, in our own lives, in the lives of others, we, we find ourselves being demoralized. You know, sometimes the, the problems we face as Christians are greater in the church than they are outside. There are lots of challenges that we face in the world today. Uh, but often it's the struggles within, amongst ourselves, that pose the, the greatest threat to us. As he comments on this chapter, Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says, treacherous Israelites are more to be dreaded than malicious Canaanites. In other words, he's saying that the problems that came upon Israel because uh, of Achan's sin and uh, because of their failure to depend upon God were a greater threat to them than the people of Canaan, whom God was going to enable them to overcome. So we can have a, a positive effect on one another, or we can have a negative effect upon one another. But here's this time of restoration. They're moving forward again, and they're going to take the city where they had experienced defeat. And one of the great reasons for that was, again, the promises of God. Now, this place is, is very significant. Ai and Bethel are mentioned in this chapter. If you uh, read in Genesis chapter 12 of, of Abraham entering into the promised land, uh, coming from Haran, and he enters into the land and he travels through it. And uh, this is what we're told, that uh, he traveled to a place called Shechem, and from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Centuries before, Abraham had been in this very spot between Bethel and Ai. He pitched his tent like the uh, Israelites. He didn't have any ownership of land in Canaan. And also he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And God had said, I'm going to give you this land. And now centuries later, they're in the same place. And the promise is being fulfilled. You know, we, we, we are very much people of an instant age. We want it now. You know, a text comes to us and we read it and we think about it. And before we've had a time to respond to it, someone says, did you get my text? You know, what's, what's, what's the answer? God keeps his promises, but they often take time to be fulfilled. And he's keeping his promise here and he's brought them to this this place where Abraham pitched his tent and built an altar. Not only that, Jacob 
the grandson of Abraham. As he went to seek a wife, he had spent a night at Bethel. And uh, God had appeared to him in a vision. And uh, Abraham had said, truly, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And again, God renewed the promise to Jacob that the land would be given to him. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Where Abraham pitched his tent, where, where Jacob slept, now the people are about to conquer because God's promises are always fulfilled. And, you know, we need to look to God's promises as Christians and as a church. The Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter, when Peter had just declared Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God, and uh, he said to him, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to build my church. And that promise has been wonderfully fulfilled, made to those first 12 men who were disciples of Jesus, who were sent out into all the world to make disciples of all nations, and now around the world. There are so many people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the centuries, people have been coming to know him. Empires have come and go, but the church of Jesus Christ has continued. And like the Israelites, there have been times of advance and times of struggle. But that promise has been fulfilled. God is working out his purpose as year succeeds year. And one of the wonderful promises which Jesus made to his disciples as he sent them into the world is, I am with you always even to the very end of the age. And as we've seen with the children, the disciples were to uh, fish for people, uh, to bring them to be disciples too. And as we think of what that means for us here in St. Melons, to, to reach the people of this community and more widely of this city, we have the promise of God, the promise of our Saviour. I will build my church. The church is his, not mine or yours. It's not ours, it's his. And he builds it. He adds to it. And we've had the joy of seeing people added to the church, even in this last couple of years, which have been difficult, who have come to know the Savior. So the, the promises of God are, are always fulfilled. He keeps his promise. But then the second thing I want us to see is that God gives his people the victory. AI is taken and destroyed. So Joshua is told, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, but take the whole army and go up to attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And then he says this in the second verse, set an ambush behind the city. And you see how God was guiding Joshua and the people every step of the way. The first city was Jericho. And the victory over Jericho was a very unusual one because they didn't fight at all. They just marched around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched and shouted and the walls fell down and Jericho was taken. Now God says to his people, this is what I want you to do with AI. I want you to set an ambush behind the city. And uh, that's what they do. Joshua divides the army into two parts. When they had been defeated... They'd sent just a small number up, and uh, they had run away. And uh, God is going to use that fact that the people of Ai have run after the Israelites who have fled, and he's going to use it this time to lead them into a defeat. The city will be taken, and it's going to be an ambush. And uh, so the, the, 
Joshua divides the army, some of the army behind the city, some in front of it. And uh, the people this time are doing what God tells them to do. Their previous overconfidence uh, is to be put behind them. And they're to begin to trust God and to obey him. And also, Joshua is told to take the whole army, not just a section. That's what the people who'd gone to spy out out AI had said. Oh, it's only a little city. We don't need many people. But God God says, no, I want the whole army to be involved. Some in front and some behind the city, but everybody to be involved. You know, that's a principle in the life of the church as well, that every one of us is involved in what God is doing. Not just some people, but everyone. We need everyone. We need all the diversity that God gives us, all the gifts and skills that God gives us. Uh, Paul speaks about the church as a body in Ephesians 4, and he says this, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The whole body grows as each part does its work. That's one of our great challenges as a, as a congregation, to see every member of the congregation able to function in order that the church might grow. Uh, and that we're firing on all cylinders as a congregation. And you know, that's really important as we, we emerge uh, out of lockdown, as we trust we are emerging, that we come out uh, ready for the challenge, like the Israelites, ready uh, to take on the task again. And uh, they're going to have to engage in the battle this time as they go to Ai. They're going to be fighting this time. And uh, sometimes we can be reluctant to engage in the battle, but we must if the Church of Jesus Christ is to advance and people are to come to know the Saviour. And God gives this strategy. Uh, It's a, a plan, and they obey it. And uh, because they obey it, they, they win a, a notable victory. In other words, as we go about God's work, we, we've got to think, what are we doing? It's quite a challenging question, isn't it? To ask ourselves, what is our strategy? What is our plan as a church? To reach the people around us with the gospel. Do we have a plan? Do we know the way we're going to seek to accomplish it? It's possible, isn't it, to be very vague. And say, well, we're just sort of doing things, and I suppose... Um, It'll, it'll happen, but, but it isn't like that with God. He, he tells them, this is the way to win this particular victory and to take this city. Divide the people. And we need to think, what's our pattern? What's our strategy? What's our plan? How are we going to reach people? Children, young people, mothers, children, people at large, men. How are we to bring the gospel to men? What's our thinking? Do we all understand it? Are we all able to play our part in bringing it to pass. And uh, we, we need to seek God's wisdom, to think about these things, to talk about them. Because there is no doubt that the spiritual enemies of God and of the gospel, they, they have a plan. They know what they're seeking to do. Uh, in fact, it's amazing, isn't it, how such a small group of people in our society who don't believe in God and don't stand for righteousness, they've got plans. They have all kinds of ideas and they their plans at times seem to be succeeding. Uh, Paul urged the Ephesians to take their stand against the devil's schemes. 
You know, when, when people play in a, in a match, in a game, they assess the other side, don't they? Where their strengths and weaknesses are. They set their team up in such a way as to confront that and to overcome it. Are we thinking in those terms? We're engaged in a spiritual battle. We're not struggling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, Paul says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we sort of wander out in a vague way. But it wasn't like that at AI. They came out with a clear purpose and an intention. And you know, sometimes people speak disparagingly about plans and intentions, but God uses means in order to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so the people engage AI in battle. And when they approach from the front of the city, they think, the people of AI think, this is going to be just like it was last time. We'll run out after them. And as they run out, the people are back, move in. They take the city and they set it on fire. And isn't it a, a terrifying picture of the judgment that comes upon these people of AI? Uh, they're being dispossessed because of their sin, their sin against God. But the judgment that comes upon them in the destruction of their city and of the people who lived there is a, a terrible picture of the vulnerability of those who do not know God. And uh, Israel wins a great victory, and the people of Ai uh, are uh, destroyed. And this time, there is a share of the plunder. Uh, when they took Jericho, they were told not to take anything, and of course Achan did. But this time, God says, you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. And there's a practical reason for that. There are all these people to feed. This great company of Israel. And God is providing for them. In the first victory, the spoil belongs to God. That's, that's a great principle in the scriptures. The people, when they harvested their crops, gave the first fruits to God. His portion was first, not last. Here, as uh, the land is taken, the first victory belongs to God. The second is to be given to the people. They will share in the spoils. It's a great principle in honoring God. Do we put him first? Uh, for instance, when we give money to God's work, do we say, well, we set apart his portion first and then work out all the other costs we have? In our time, do we say, well, my first commitment in time is to God and to his kingdom? Or is it something we add when we've done everything else? The first victory, the first fruits of Jericho belong to God. Now the people are able to enjoy the plunder. And of course you realize that Achan, who took things that he shouldn't have taken, never received the blessings that God gave. If he'd only waited, he would have received the blessings from the second victory. But he didn't. And so God's promises are always kept. And here he gives a great victory to the Israelites. And he too will give us victory if we will only trust him and obey his commands. And then the last thing I want us to see this morning is the, the, the renewal of the covenant as the people gather between, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And uh, they're there at this place that again goes back to Abraham and to the patriarchs, and to the promises of God. And uh, Joshua leads the people to this place. And, and there he, he builds an altar 
uh, to the God of Israel. Here's a testimony to the fact that, that this battle is not just a physical military battle, it's a spiritual battle. It's got to do with God, the God of all the earth, the God of Israel, but the God of the nations too. And uh, so the, the whole people are gathered. And, and one man, as he describes this scene, says this, this solemn episode is the summit of the book of Joshua. This is a high point. They've come out of Egypt. They've been rescued and delivered from there. They've gone through the years in the wilderness. Now they're entering the land and Jericho has been defeated. Now Ai has been defeated. And then the people gather solemnly in the presence of God. Hundreds of thousands of people. As the, the last verse uh, mentions, there were men, yes, but women and children and aliens, strangers who lived among them. There's always that emphasis in the Old Testament upon those who are not native-born Israelites, but who lived with the people of Israel and belonged to them. Uh, just as in a church, we may have people who are in formal membership, people are not, but it's a company of God's people. And it includes the women, the children, the young ones as well. And here they are gathered. Just, just picture the scene. They're between these two mounts, Ebel and Gerizim. And uh, they've gathered, why, why? They've gathered to consecrate themselves afresh to God in this land that he had given them. Abraham had built an altar. He only had a tent to live in, but he built an altar. He built several altars in order that he might worship God. And that's what Joshua does. He, he builds an altar and he gives testimony to God's faithfulness. And uh, he reads the book of law, the book of Moses. He reminds the people of God's commands as they enter the promised land. And you see how worship of God is tied to obedience to him, submission to him. And here is this nation that is to have such a significant role in the history of the world and in the purposes of God and in the coming of the Saviour. And they're gathered there as a nation to solemnly embrace God's laws, the rule of their life and the condition of their prosperity. If they obey the law, they will be blessed. If they disobey it, they will be cursed. Those are the terms, the simple terms of the covenant. And you just see these people gathered in the midst of a pagan nation, a nation that will be dis people that will be dispossessed of the land, but, but God's people will be given it. And uh, the faithfulness of God is remembered. He's kept his promises. The promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's delivered them out of Egypt. He's brought them into the land and he's going to lead them on. And, and the people say, well, this is our God. And uh, we will be faithful to him. And uh, the, the whole situation is very simple in one sense. The, the stones of the altar are uncut. Uh, they aren't made beautiful by man's skills. They're there. They're from the earth. And they're there to give testimony, unadorned testimony to the true and the living God. Nothing is to distract from him and from his glory. People aren't going to say, what a wonderful altar. They're going to say, what a wonderful God. And uh, we want to serve him. What he's done for us has brought out of our hearts a response. We want to love him. 
We want to serve him. We want to obey him. We've learned from our failures and we want to be true to him. Of course, they did fail again. But that was the, the commitment that they made as they offered sacrifices and fellowship offerings. And uh, they stood there and, and God blessed the people. And, uh, you know, as we think about our own situation as Christians and as a church, is that how we gather? Do we have that sense of being a people together, not just our own congregation, but countless people around the world who have that same commitment? Uh, when we last met around the Lord's table, you know, we sang that great hymn of Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. And that wonderful last verse which says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Is that how we feel about it? As we think about our Saviour's love for us, or as you think about what it means to be a Christian, it demands everything, soul, life, and all, all belong to him. And in a sense, that's what they're saying in a, an Old Testament context. The Lord who has led us, the Lord who has helped us, the Lord who has provided for us, delivered us, and is now giving us the victory. He deserves our soul and our life and our all. And here this great company renews their vows. And it was a solemn time. As they say, this man says it's a, it's a summit of the book. It's impressive in its moral grandeur, standing out from the paganism of their day, the worship of the true God. And I wonder, when we gather together as God's people, do we think of it in those terms? You know, we talk about going to church. And uh, going to church is unusual at this time, isn't it? We have places to sit and so on. It's all very unnatural. But the gathering of God's people is always very significant. The gathering of God's people under God and around his word. Some years ago, Mark and I stayed in a, a cottage in Wales belonging to one of our friends, and there were a number of books there, and we picked some to read during the week, and there was one which talked about the architecture of church buildings through the ages. And I learned something that I hadn't realized, that when early churches were built, I'm talking about churches in the 16th, 17th century, they were in a different layout to what we are used to. Uh, they, they faced the long wall, not the narrow wall. And uh, there would be a man who would be leading the service and preaching the word, and the people would be gathered around. And it was a symbol of the church gathered, the people of God gathered, around the word of God. Very significant. And this book described how when um, preaching became more emphasized, and there there were those who were orators, who made a great thing of oratory. There wasn't much truth often in it. It was just empty oratory. But the buildings were switched round, and you had the pulpit as the centre, and you had the narrow wall. And suddenly the preacher became the all-important person. But in those early days, it was the people of God gathered around the word of God. And that's a picture that you have here in Joshua, this great nation gathered around an altar, an altar where they would make offerings to God and uh, hearing the law of Moses, the law, the covenant responsibilities they had. What a solemn picture, you know, to see these people dedicating themselves to God, the God of all the earth, 
and about to take the land. And, you know, we need to have that picture of, of what we are as God's people when we're gathered together with a, with a sense of his presence and a, a solemn commitment to, to keep his laws. So, so there's, there's restoration, there's renewal. And you almost sense that after this, this period uh, of lockdown, when somehow our lives as Christians have been fragmented, our church life has been fragmented, it would be good to have a time when we gather, all of us, as one people, uh, to rejoice in God and to give him our thanks and to dedicate ourselves afresh uh, to his service. And for that to happen widely because of God's wonderful kindness and grace to us in Jesus Christ and our desire to honour him, that that love which is so amazing and so divine might demand our soul and our life and our all. We might give him gladly all that we are. Isn't it a lovely picture that as Joshua is reading the law of Moses, all of it, there are the men and the women and the children and those not born into Israel, but all under God's blessing and committed to serve him. What an indication to the people of the land that the conquest would succeed. And for us, it isn't a, a military conquest. It's, it's a gospel contest, conquest. That people might come to know our Savior and to find salvation and forgiveness and eternal life in him. And so may we be dedicated to him individually, but also together as a people. And take to heart those words of Joshua. Don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. Amen.